Genesis chapter 4. As I mentioned, this morning we're going to look at the gospel and the conflict between mankind. And as we have seen so far in our series, Michael has shared with us in week one how we saw evidence of the gospel in the creation account. We saw last week a much more obvious and literal uh, reference to the gospel in Genesis 3.15, right? In the fall of man and the original sin in the garden. And as you all know from the story and from the fabric of Genesis, sin begins to become pervasive, doesn't it? It began with just simply a decision to be their own God and choose to do something on their own, to operate independently, to look at the fruit and go, looks pretty good, what's the harm? And what we'll see in Genesis chapter 4 is how sin begins to then infect man's relationship horizontally. Last week we saw how sin broke the vertical relationship with the Almighty Creator. Create a breach and a chasm between God's highlighted pinnacle image of Himself that He created man and woman in His own image and likeness. And Satan went right after that and attacked that and broke that relationship. And now we're going to see how that relationship and how that sin gets broken horizontally among our peers, among fellow mankind. And so we're going to spend some time in Genesis chapter 4 looking at that. And what we're going to see, and you know the story of Cain and Abel, and you know how Cain's anger began to well up with him, within him. And so I'm going to ask for a show of hands this morning. We don't have cameras here. You're not being recorded. How many of you have had some anger towards anyone or anything this week? I'm going to put up two hands. Okay? And how about if, how about if, we, how about if we stretch it out and say two weeks? Was I too tight when I said a week? <laughs> right? Multiple hands, right? It's easy. It's unfortunately original sin that's still hiding in us. Even though we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come, we still have remnants of the old man and a sin nature that's left over. And fortunately, we have God's Holy Spirit residing and dwelling within us to help us control that. But the fact is, we still get frustrated and we still get angry. Just Monday morning, Susan and I were physically down at the Franklin County Courthouse in a hearing room with the Franklin County Recorder's Office with three representatives, a treasurer, a county treasurer, a county uh, auditor's representative, and I think maybe a commissioner. And we're sitting there before these three individuals and they're elevated and they're up on their thrones. You can see the anger coming out. We're down low like peons that we are. And we're arguing why our property should not have been increased when they had previously decreased it for a very legitimate reason. They had previously decreased it and recognized you have damaged your property. It's irreparable. We understand. We're going to compensate or adjust the value accordingly. Hey, great. That was in 2018. Perfect. And then they just recently jacked it back up for some reason and said, oh, we think it's been repaired. It's not. The photographs still look the same. We held up photographs in front of them. They go, yeah, it doesn't look like it's changed, is it? Eh, We still feel that your value is higher. So, 
we politely stay composed. We stay polite. We behave as we are called to as believers to honor principalities and places and people in authority and we thank them for the time we walked out. But I'm telling you, I was burning. I was getting in the car and I was just burning because it didn't make any sense. It's not logical. And I had anger about the situation. I certainly didn't want to do anything violent towards them, but I was frustrated with them. And so I know you all can relate. I know you all had situations in the past and maybe in the very recent past that have caused you to harbor some anger in your heart and become frustrated. And that's what sin does, and that's what we'll see this morning. So we're going to look at chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And what we're going to see there is how the conflict between mankind ultimately uh, results first from a conflict with God. The conflict that we see between mankind ultimately results first from a conflict with God. That's going to be verses 1 through 7. second section is going to be that conflict between mankind ultimately is trying to seek justice from mankind. What often happens when we have conflict with our fellow brethren and men and women is that we're seeking justice from them. And that's a flawed place to try and make a right. Right. That's going to be verses 8 through 14. The third section is just going to be the conflict between mankind can only be addressed by the gospel. Conflict between mankind can only be addressed by the gospel. That will be verses 9 through 17. Then we'll look at verses 21 through 26 as well. So let's just read verses 1 through 7 to get started. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came, about, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Alright, seems logical. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the first thing we see here is in verse 2. And you guys know this story. You've seen it before. But Cain works in the fields, and he harvests the produce of the ground, whereas Abel, his brother, was a keeper of livestock. Now, both of these are legitimate assignments. When Michael shared about creation account with us, we saw that God had created trees and um, shrubbery that was fruit-bearing, that was made for mankind, for sustenance and provision, and it required cultivation. So Cain is operating in that. He's cultivating, he's managing, he's receiving produce from the ground that was designed for sustenance and provision. Perfect, great. And Abel, Michael said that God created animals that needed domestication. Animals that needed to be managed. So Abel is a keeper of the livestock. He's out in the fields managing the livestock. Great. So there's nothing inherently good or bad about these guys or contrasting or that one has a job that the other should have taken or anything like that. They're both managing that which God has provided. 
But in verse 3a there it says, um, it came about in the course of time. Hmm. It came about in the course of the time. Now, we don't really know how long this was. Um, we do know that later in the text we'll see that there were many people on the earth. There were others. So we don't really know how much time has passed. But certainly, time has passed since original sin in the garden and God requiring that Adam and Eve leave the garden. Enough time has passed that this family understands that God deserves worship, that God deserves reverence and honor, that God is their provider and a portion should be returned to him in an act of worship. I think I can safely say that Adam and Eve were probably very explicit in sharing with their children, these boys, here's who you worship and here's who you don't. Right? They had a very unique and distinct experience to speak from. And so we can generally assume that they had been giving these offerings to the Lord as an act of worship. But there hasn't been any ceremonial law that's been given for atonement yet. There has been no law given about offering a tithe. There was just simply a general knowledge that God deserved their honor and their respect. Right? We don't have any of those laws given, the civil, the ceremonial, the stuff that's needed for atonement later until God gives that to Moses. So these guys are offering and they're returning a portion back to the Lord. But it says in verses 3 through 5 that Cain brought an offering from the ground. Abel brought an offering of his livestock and the Lord looked favorably on Abel and his offering but not on Cain and his offering. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. You know, the NET says that his expression was downcast. He was dejected. His face fell. Now, there's nothing here to imply that this was necessarily about the quality of the offerings, but rather the attitude. Many will say, oh, well, his offering wasn't as good as Abel's, or maybe he didn't bring the first fruits or whatever. But the text doesn't really say that. What it says, and what is revealed in 1 John, and we'll jump there if you will, turn to 1 John chapter 3 with me. What's revealed is that this is really an attitude and a heart issue. 1 John chapter 3, First John chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So John simply tells us, and John reveals and gives us a little bit more context and says, Abel was righteous, Cain's deeds were evil, and it was not acceptable to God. God was not pleased with Cain's heart, the manner in which he was coming before him and offering his offering. That's all. We can speculate all day on, you know, was it um, how he did it? Was it um, what he brought? Was it when? Maybe he was offering it to a false god or something. Who knows? There's many different reasons, but the simple fact of the matter is it was a heart issue. And John reminds us there in that passage 
that we are called to love others and to love others as God loves others. He says that we love because He first loved us. And He says, whoever loves God cannot also hate his brother. It's a heart issue. Cain had a heart issue. And look at verses 6 and 7. I'm going to paraphrase. Why the mopey face, Cain? Why are you moping around? Why do you have a bad attitude? You know full well that if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. You'll be fine if you do what's right. But remember, watch out, Cain. Sin is at work within you, and it will become your master if you do not control it. Isn't that a wonderful and also scary word picture that God gives us there? You know, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and be of sober mind because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Drug away by a temptation. And then, after desire has conceived, like a baby, it is born, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I mean, look at that. Look at those word pictures that we see there. God goes to Cain and says, Cain, you're harboring anger in your heart. You have a heart issue. You have an anger issue. And sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It desires to master you. And you must master it. Otherwise, you got problems. It will be your master if you don't control it. He says it's crouching, ready to devour you. And Peter reminds us that Satan prowls like a lion looking for us to devour. James talks about sin starting just real small as a temptation and then growing. And he kind of gives us this picture of how a child is born and when it matures and grows up and becomes an adult, it's full-fledged sin and transgression but began so small as a simple temptation. And so we'll just pause here for a moment and we'll say that Cain had a heart problem, not an offering problem. Sin darkens our hearts. Sin makes us an enemy of God. Sin opposes everything about God. And so what we see here is that Cain has a problem with God first in his heart, but then his anger will just simply be unleashed on his brother Abel. Cain's issue is a heart issue with his creator first and it manifests itself towards his brother Abel. Turn with me if you would to Psalm 51. I'm going to read this whole thing because I think it's really important. As you know, this is a Psalm of David. Psalm 51 be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned. Now, did David sin against man? He did. Did David sin against a woman? He did. But ultimately, David recognizes My sin, first and foremost, Lord, is against you, and I have transgressed your standard. You are blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part 
You'll make me know your wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me, watch this, a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Isn't that what Cain needed? Lord, renew my heart. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. The text is eventually going to tell us towards the end of chapter 4, or the middle of chapter 4, that Cain left God's presence. Now we know that we can never leave God's presence fully, but what a great picture of having to be cast out and away from the Lord. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. David understood that his sin was worthy of death. When he says blood guiltiness there, he goes, I know that I have been guilty of killing a man and what is then warranted and what I deserve is death myself for my transgression, for my penalty. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Isn't that the principle at play here with Cain? Cain brought an offering, but the text tells us that God did not show favor on Cain and his offering because it wasn't about the offering. David says right here, Lord, you don't delight in the burnt offerings. I can offer them all day long to you, and I can do it with a terrible heart and begrudgingly, and that does not bring you honor and you are not pleased. He says, what you're after, Lord, is my heart. What God was after for Cain was his heart. Go ahead and flip back to Genesis. So the gospel is the only solution for conflict between mankind because the gospel addresses our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Think about that. Who can understand the heart? Romans 6.17 And thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from where? The heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul says in Romans 10.10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore anyone in Christ, you heard me say this earlier, is a new creation, the old has passed and the new has come. Look at all those references to the, the supernatural surgery that God does on the heart through the gospel. Our salvation in Christ Jesus places a new heart in us because that is the root of conflict between God first and then men horizontally. So the gospel restores our relationship with God and empowers us to resist temptation. Think about that. The Holy Spirit inhabiting our hearts and dwelling in us not only restores our relationship with God, but He speaks to us the way God spoke to Cain and said, uh, sin is crouching at your door. You've all been there. You've all heard the still, small whisper of the Holy Spirit in your hearts and in your minds. Ah, this feels and looks an awful lot like sin crouching at my door. And you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there, praise God. 
He doesn't stop there with just the warning. The Holy Spirit empowers each and every one of us to resist the temptation, to resist that sin crouching at our door, and to be masters over it before it masters us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Cain, all he had was God's warning. And I'm not saying that God was not enough. What I'm saying is, let's go back to what Michael has said and when he references Ed DeZago and he says that returning to the garden wasn't exactly what God is after. Returning to the garden has limitations. Sure, they walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. Hey, that's great. Wouldn't that be neat? But we have the divine dwelling in us which is so much greater than just walking and talking with Him in the cool of the day. And so what we have is so much greater than even what Cain had at his disposal. His... his Exchange with the Lord was God warning him, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, you must master it. That's it, that's the warning. That's all he had. The best that Cain could do was will in his own might a resistance, a manufactured resistance in his will against sinning. That's it. We have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to empower us to resist. That's so much better than just having an external warning where we got to muster up enough gumption in ourselves, in our flesh, and manufacture a protection. God lives in us. And praise be to God in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. Why? Because He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But, when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Isn't that comforting? So, the next thing we're going to look at this morning. Conflict between men results from seeking justice among men. Look at verses 8 through 14. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So your translations may say a little bit different. Um, they may render verse 8 in a variety of ways. What effectively has happened is, is uh, Cain has said, Hey Abel, let's go out to the field. Why don't you come on out with me and let's just go have a talk. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? That should sound very familiar to you all from our passage last week. Where, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And he said, uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden. Thou shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. Look at what Cain did in an effort to seek justice about his circumstances and his situation. Cain believed that he was being treated unjustly, unfairly. He believed that the Franklin County Auditor really owed him something. And in order to make this wrong right, he is going to seek justice horizontally from his own brother. 
He's going to figure out a way to make this situation right in his eyes. And he calls his brother out, says, let's go to the field, and he murders him. Now we opened this morning just briefly referencing what we saw last week about Satan's attack on the relationship between the holy creator of the universe and his prized possession and creation, which is mankind, made in the image and likeness of he himself. How much is murder an attack on the image and likeness of God? I'm not saying that this is lesser or greater than attacking the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. But I'm going to say this is up there. It's close. He, he cuts the relationship in half and he's snipping that and now he's going after the image and likeness. Satan is upping his game, isn't he? What a direct attack he's making against the God of the universe. Oh, you, you, think, uh, you think you're all that, Lord? Well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack that which you have made in your image and your likeness and watch them destroy each other. You know what else this does? These were two brothers. This is a direct attack on the family model. Isn't that Satan's next most tried and true and legacy of tactics? Is he goes after the family. And we see that today. We see that today, all over the news, Satan attacking the family model. And so here in this one event, we have conflict that is a direct attack on the image and likeness of God, and we have a conflict that is a direct attack on the family. It started really, really early on. Cain's action of murder is the first real act of violence. Now, I know that we talked about God having to sacrifice the skins of animals to cover Adam and Eve. I understand that. But this is a real, egregious, murderous act of violence. And it's an attack on the family. Conflict breaks down the relationship between mankind and even family members. But you know what the gospel does? The gospel can unite even strangers. You can go around the world to a completely foreign culture and society, not even speak their language, and barely be able to communicate with another believer and have a common bond in Christ Jesus. You can be at odds with your brother or your sister or your mom, your dad, your children at home under your own roof and maybe not be common in salvation, right? You may be saved and they may not be. Yet you can go around the world, connect with another believer who has the same salvation in Christ Jesus as you and you have a bond that is greater than any familial bond that is just wonderful. Isn't that beautiful what the gospel can do? Mirren, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight you for a second. So, when I picked you up from camp a couple weeks ago, uh, she's, we're walking and she goes, Sup, bro? <laughs> I'm picking her up from camp she says, Sup, bro? And I said, What's up? And I said, Do you know what bro means? She goes, Nope. <laughs> and I said, Well, it means brother. And so I said, So is that what you're saying? Are you saying, What's up, brother? And this is no joke. She says, well, you're my brother in heaven. Isn't that cool? While Satan will do everything he can to break 
the bonds between the Creator and the family and any other relationships. The Gospel has the ability to unite even the strangest and estranged relationships and create a bond that is even greater. I just think that's beautiful. And did you notice the parallels to the garden? Did you notice the personification that we see here in the word picture? Uh, Verses 9 and 12, very, very similar. Uh, Hey, uh, where are you, Adam? Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 and 12. Where are you, Adam? Where are you going? Why are you hiding? The second, the follow-up was, uh, did you eat from that tree that I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam do? (laughs) Well, the woman, Michael did that for the woman you put here with me. She made me do it. A quick blame shift, a quick deflection, right? Look at verse 9 in chapter 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, "Uh, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Like the garden, we see a really quick intent to deflect. And this tells us a lot. This tells us a lot about Cain's heart. Cain is either really dumb, right? Really, really dumb to assume that God doesn't actually know where his brother is. Or, Cain is completely aware of the omniscience of God and he's being extremely flippant. I mean, isn't... uh, Maybe there's other reasons to conclude, but isn't that kind of what we're to take away from this text? You know, he, he either doesn't know the omniscience of God, which he should, or he's fully aware of the omniscience of God, and now he's being really flippant. Am I my brother's keeper? But, you know, am I responsible for knowing where Abel is and watching over him? Look at verses 10 and 11. Look at this word picture and this personification that we see. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You know, blood doesn't cry, but if you give it these human qualities, it does, and it creates this image. And then he says, And the ground has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The ground doesn't have a mouth, but if you give it personal qualities, it sure does. And you get this image of of Abel's blood being spilled and crying out from the ground which has swallowed it up. I think God is being very intentional here about highlighting the egregious nature and act of murder. And look at verses 13 through 14. All we really see here from Cain is remorse for his consequences, but we don't see any repentance, do we? He says, my punishment is too great to bear. Whoever finds me will kill me. He's only concerned about his well-being and what will happen. He, he does not cry out like David did, Oh Lord, I recognize how sinful and utterly depraved I am. Please wash me of this guilty sin and this transgression. Blot out my transgressions. Place in me a new heart. Forgive me. We don't see any of that. From Cain. And so, what we see here is that Cain, in order, in his own mind, in his own eyes, to make a wrong right, he took it into his own hands and he sought justice horizontally from mankind. And isn't that what often we see today in this world? That when we see violence and when we see conflict, when we see our children wrestling and fighting over a toy, one of them, or both of them, believes that there is an injustice of sorts. One or both of them believes that they are owed or should occupy that toy for that moment. And then we grow up 
and one believes that they should occupy this nation and this territory and geography of of land, and this one says, no, I should occupy that. I am owed that, and in order to make that right, I need to go in and do whatever it takes. I was listening to Dennis Prager, a talk radio talk show host this week, and he has a whole section on um, thing, uh, statements and, and um, assertions that he believes are, are crazy. And he was talking about how one of the, the most absurd statements that he hears people make is that um, people are generally good. That people are generally and mostly good and created good. And he goes, that's absurd. That is the worst and stupidest thing I've ever heard, he says. And he goes on to talk about it. He goes, this doesn't even have to be a religious position. He simply says, a non-believer, atheist, agnostic should be able to look objectively at life and go, no, people are not inherently and basically good. And on the same show, this particular episode, and I don't watch him regularly, or listen to him regularly, I was just listening to it on the radio, in the car, he had a gentleman call in. And this gentleman uh, was a um, United States military serviceman, and he was over in Japan, and he was um, engaging with um, a Japanese patriot of some sort. This, this gentleman was um, you know, sold out for Japan and, and very loyal to Japan, as he should be and everything else. And this gentleman was encouraging this U.S. citizen, you need to go see Hiroshima. You need to go see the site. And now his tone shifted. You need to go see the site and the devastation that that atom bomb created. And this gentleman that had called into this radio show said, I would love to. And next time you're in Hawaii, go visit the USS Arizona. I mean, a a great response, very patriotic, but both are extremely sad commentary on what sin does horizontally to mankind. And so... We have a tendency to seek justice horizontally. And the only justice that we should be seeking should be from the Lord above. And the gospel eventually teaches us that. gospel teaches us that I don't need to seek my own vengeance. The gospel teaches me that I am to forgive 70 times 7. The gospel teaches me that even though I haven't physically murdered or committed adultery, Jesus says, if you've even thought about those things in your heart, you've already committed them. Think about the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, unless you feel like they mistreated you and they're not really due any honor. Does it say that? Do not murder, unless you've been wronged and the other person really deserves it. You see where this is going. Do not commit adultery, unless you're not getting what you want at home from your spouse. Then it's worth it, right? Do not steal, unless it makes you even with the other person in life. Do not lie unless it evens the playing field and helps your case or gives you an advantage. Do not covet. Well, you know, of course, unless God has mistakenly not given you what you're owed and accidentally gave it to your neighbor. You know, when we're seeking justice horizontally from other men and mankind, what we're effectively saying is that, God, you're not adequate enough for me. Who you are, God, is no longer enough for me and your provision for me is no longer enough either. Isn't that ultimately what we're doing? God, I don't trust you to work in my situation. I'm going to take it into my own hands. Or God, what you have already done for me, what you continue to do for me, your provision for me in life, uh, I am no longer okay with that anymore. But, 
The gospel is the only solution for conflict between mankind because the gospel reminds us that our joy and our contentment is to be found in Christ alone. The gospel speaks to our hearts and it reminds us that God is sovereign, that he's fair, that he's just, he is our provider. He reminds us through the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, that he will care for all of our needs, he will supply all of our needs, and we need not covet our neighbor's houses, wives, etc. We need not steal to make ends meet because God will provide a way for us. The gospel, the Holy Spirit residing in us, reminds us of these things. And so then our last section this morning, that the conflict between mankind can only be solved by grace and mercy of the gospel. Look at verses 15 through 17, and then maybe even 21 through 26 for a moment. Verse 15, So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain... Vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. And then jump over to verse 21. And his brother's name was uh, Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Uh, as for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was uh, Nama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth... To him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So just a couple of things that I want to highlight for us here in this last section. We see, I'm going to say at least two acts of mercy by God. And you go, what? Acts of mercy by God? Remember last week when we saw that after Adam and Eve had become sinful, God did what? He did a couple of things, but one thing he did was to guard the entrance to the garden to prevent them from going back so that they could not live perpetually, indefinitely, infinitely in their sin. And Michael reminded us that that was ultimately an act of mercy, an act of grace, to protect them from themselves so that they could ultimately die a natural death and then live with him forever. I would submit here that a first act of mercy that we see by God upon Cain is allowing him to live. You see, Cain could have just been wiped out, just lit up in an instant. He was worthy of it. He killed his brother. God could have just said, that's it, you're done. But no, God says, I'm going to let you live. That's an act of mercy. Cain didn't get what he deserved and had coming. The second act of mercy we see is that God appoints a sign that all men would recognize and do no harm to Cain. You see, remember what we talked about in our second section about seeking justice horizontally from mankind? 
Cain knows that when he goes out to wander, men are going to want revenge for his brother Abel's death. Men are going to want their own justice for Abel's life. And men are going to want to kill Cain. Cain is acutely aware of that reality. And so the second act of mercy that we see by God is to appoint a sign on Cain that all men would know, all men would recognize, and do him no harm. Did Cain deserve that? No. But because of who God is, God says, I got you. You don't deserve this, but I got you. All Cain cares about is himself. But God is still being merciful to his image and likeness. We're going to see an act of grace. We see two acts of grace. Two acts of mercy, two acts of grace. First act of grace is in verse 17. That God extends to Cain. He's able to take a wife, bear a son, and establish a city. You've heard us say from the platform here many times that mercy is when we are spared and we are not to suffer the consequences of something we have done that we are rightfully owed. But grace is when we receive and are blessed with something that we didn't earn. So Cain could have just been spared and extended mercy and allowed to live and not killed by other men. But God, because who he is, goes above and beyond and says, I'm actually going to extend grace to you and you will be a long life, you will take a wife, you will have a son, and you will even build a city. Did Cain deserve any of that? No. But because of God and who God is. The second act of grace we see is that God extends to Adam and Eve. In verses 25 and 26, God blesses Adam and Eve with Seth And Eve says that this is in place of my son Abel. And did you notice what happened after that? Men and women began to call on the name of the Lord. So these acts of grace and mercy simply prolonged but could not prevent the inevitable. What I mean by that is we read that middle section. We read that middle section and we saw what Lamech did. We don't know how much time has passed. Lamech is Cain's great-great-great-grandson. And we see that although God extended mercy and grace to Cain, it prolonged Cain's life, but it kind of kicked the can down the road for the inevitable. That again, we see another murder and vengeance taking into Lamech's own hands. And then eventually we'll get to Genesis 6-5 where it says, The wickedness of men was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. So as we pull this together, we see that God's merciful response to Cain, I would argue, foreshadows the gospel today. The mercy and grace that God extended to Cain foreshadows the gospel for the unbeliever. Think about this. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise of judgment. Rather, He is patient with you, not wanting that anyone should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. You know, allowing Cain to live shows patience and forbearance that maybe Cain might come to his senses and return to the Lord. When Peter's peers and contemporaries were complaining that God was slow to judge, 
He says, no, 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 you're getting the wrong idea. God is not slow the way you think about slow. Rather, you need to understand that God is being patient because when his judgment comes, it's going to be swift, fast, and it's going to be intense. And God is extending love and grace and mercy by not quickly judging, but by being patient and long-suffering so that all might come to a saving relationship in him. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is patient and God is long-suffering. And we see a little mini-example with Cain. Could have wiped him out. Could have judged him like that. But said, Cain, I'm going to let you live. Maybe you'll return to me. The second way that I would argue that the gospel is foreshadowed through Cain <clears throat> is in 2 Corinthians one twenty-two. For the believer, God has put his seal on us He has sealed us with His Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. So what has God done for us? He's put a mark on us. He has sealed us. Now we know that men can do us harm. We understand that we can suffer consequences, that we can endure hardships here on this side of eternity. I get that. Right? Not in the same way that the mark protected Cain. We, we will experience consequences and hardships. But we have been sealed and marked with the Holy Spirit that guarantees our inheritance and that cannot be taken away. It cannot be compromised. It cannot be withdrawn. It cannot be forfeited. It cannot be stolen from us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So like Cain, we also have been marked, but we are marked for heaven. Like Cain, we were once worthy of death, but God has gone above and beyond and acted mercifully toward us by not giving us what we deserve, which is condemnation, and He has extended grace to us by granting us something we didn't earn and don't deserve, which is eternal life. So not only has he removed the consequences of condemnation, but he has marked us with the Holy Spirit and he says, I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to do you one better and I'm actually going to make you partakers of the divine. I'm going to live in you and inhabit your hearts and I'm going to make you heirs of the kingdom. And I'm going to mark you and seal you and say you're one of mine and you're always going to be heirs with my son Christ Jesus. That's grace. And that's grace that goes above and beyond. So as we began this morning, I didn't give you a bunch of statistics about violence on the earth today. We didn't need to do that, do we? You all can walk outside, go for a walk, and see your own violence. You can turn on the television. You can read your news feeds on your computer. We don't need to talk about the statistics of violence. But the gospel addresses the conflict between mankind because the gospel addresses the heart. No matter how much Grace and mercy God extends to mankind outside of the gospel, outside of salvation in Christ Jesus, our hearts will remain evil. The only acceptable cure is the condition of the heart and the gospel. Some of you know the Christopher Walken Blue Oyster Cult SNL (laughs) sketch. I got a fever and the only prescription is more cowbell. Some of you understand that reference. We have a heart condition, and the only acceptable prescription is the blood of Christ. Secondly, the gospel reminds us that justice is not accomplished horizontally with men, but justice is accomplished with God. 
God exchanges our corrupt hearts with his heart. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and warns us of the sin that is crouching at the door. But it also empowers us. He empowers us to resist the temptation. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us and reminds us to forgive our neighbors 70 times 7 when they sin against us and when we sin against them. And so the Holy Spirit reminds us to find peace and justice in God's economy of grace and to find contentment in the Lord himself. And then lastly, the gospel restores our understanding of the image and likeness of God. When we look at others with a saved, gospel-minded, biblical worldview lens, we see others as God sees them. We understand that others whom may have sinned against us, whom we may be really frustrated with, the gospel and the Holy Spirit residing in us requires us to view them through the lens which is the image and likeness of God. And so we have a fence. We have a restraint. We have a firewall of the Holy Spirit who now requires us to love others as God loves others. And that's impossible outside the gospel. It was impossible for Cain. He got the warning, but, you know, he, he can't understand and see the way we can through the blood of Christ. And so the last thing is just that, you've heard us mention this here before, but Jesus didn't die as an attempt to redeem society. Uh, he died to redeem us so that our behavior would influence the culture around us. Colossians 1.13 For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He rescued and transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that is where our residency resides. And we are ambassadors for Jesus now.